You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Lucky Land Casino, asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The world is filled with many questions, such as, did giants exist? What is junk DNA? Does it mean that you're trash? Do you ever wonder if aliens have underwater bases in our oceans and that's why there are so many UFO sightings off the coasts of islands all over the world? How serious even is climate change and when should we start building our rafts? Hello everyone, you may recognize me as Gabby from the History of Everything podcast. And my name is Brenna and you don't recognize me from anything yet. Together, we're two scientists who explore the answers to these questions and many, many more in our new podcast, Mystery of Everything, available everywhere you get your podcasts. Monster House presents. You can enjoy extended commercial-free versions of this show by joining us at patreon.com forward slash monster talk. All one word, M-O-N-S-T-E-R-T-A-L-K. For as little as $2 a month, you can enjoy longer interviews, unbleeped language, and bonus episodes exclusive for patrons. And if $2 a month is not workable for you, but you still want to help out, be sure and leave us a positive review on your podcasting platform of choice. iTunes reviews in particular can help bring in new listeners, and your positive reviews really make a difference. If you want to learn other ways to help out, visit monstertalk.org forward slash support, where you can find even more ways to help keep this show going. Thank you to all of you who are supporting us with your hard-earned money and valuable time. We are humbled and grateful and hope that we always live up to or even exceed your expectations. At Monster Talk, we're always looking into mysteries, but there's one mystery which only you can provide the answer for. Who are you? Airwave Media is doing a network-wide audience survey, and we would love to learn more about you, our listeners, the people who make this show possible with your support and attention. Just go to surveymonkey.com forward slash r forward slash airwave, all one word. So that's surveymonkey.com forward slash r, like the letter r, forward slash airwave. But don't worry, I'll put a link to that in the show notes. Select Monster Talk from the drop-down list of shows and then fill out the simple questions to tell us more about who you are. We hope to hear from you. That's surveymonkey.com forward slash r forward slash airway. Thanks. In the mid-2000s, Animal Planet aired a television show called Lost Tapes. It blended real stories of monster reports with fictionalized encounter narratives to create a dramatic presentation for even the most placid of monsters. The final episode of Season 2 dealt with the Dover Demon and featured cryptozoologist and curator of the International Cryptozoology Museum, Lauren Coleman. Here's a little excerpt from that episode. Bill Bartlett all of a sudden came upon this creature. He saw this and was kind of burned onto his memory. The next sighting where John Baxter saw it, he was definitely more scared. His eyes seemed to glow. It wasn't an alien. It wasn't some kind of mutant animal. Nothing panned out. It's almost as if the Dover Demon popped in to our reality and popped out. I don't know what the Dover Demon is, but I definitely know they had a real interactions with something. Well, this is the one case that I, I really and most definitely am secure in saying, I don't know what this is. It's actually quite unlike anything we've ever seen before. A giant hairy creature, part ape, part man. 
in Loch Ness, a 24-mile-long bottomless lake in the highlands of Scotland. It's a creature known as the Loch Ness Monster. Monster Talk. Welcome to Monster Talk, the science show about monsters. I'm Blake Smith. And I'm Karen Stolzner. Today I'm a little nervous and excited because normally Monster Talk's not a venue where people debut their research findings. But I received an unexpected call from Joe Nickel and he told me he felt like he had found a natural explanation for the creature known as the Dover Demon. The story of the Dover Demon takes place in a period just over 24 hours in April of 1977. There are three canonical sightings of the creature, and the very first investigator on the case was Lauren Coleman. At the time, Lauren was just shy of turning 30. He was already into researching weird stuff, connected with UFO culture, Fortiana, and cryptozoology, and he is the man who coined the term Dover Demon after he heard about the encounters while he was visiting the town. The first sighting of the creature was by William Bartlett. The incident took place around 10.30 p.m. on April 21, 1977. Bartlett was just 17 years old and was driving along Farm Street with two teen friends when he saw something pale and strange on a wall alongside the road. Frightened, he sped away and reluctantly told his two passengers, who then urged him to go back. He would later describe the thing he saw, and here is a passage from Coleman's book, Mysterious America, although the passage in question was, I believe, written by UFO investigator Walter Webb. In the next instant, the witness said he realized it wasn't a dog or a cat. The entity possessed a large head shaped like a watermelon and about the same size as its trunk. In the center of the head glowed two large, round, glassy, lidless eyes, shining brightly like two orange marbles in the glare of the headlights. No other features were detected on the head. There was no discernible nose, mouth, or ears. The head seemed supported on a thin neck. And here are a few more details excerpted from the following paragraph. The creature's body, according to Bartlett, was thin and long with spindly arms and large hands and feet. The shape reminded him of a baby's body with long arms and legs. Its skin was hairless, with something like dirt smudged on it. appeared to be rough in texture like a shark, and was peach-colored. The tint was lighter, almost whitish near the hands. The creature was gone when Bartlett's car made it back to the sighting location. Bartlett would have had between 6 and 20 seconds to see the creature in the flash of the headlights, but even with that brief glance, it made a big impression. He also admitted to having a few puffs on a marijuana cigarette about an hour before this incident, but did not report feeling impaired. The next sighting took place about two hours later when John Baxter, age 15, saw something strange a little more than a mile away from the Bartlett sighting. Baxter was leaving his girlfriend's house on foot when he saw a small figure approaching him in the dark. In Coleman's book, a big chunk of the chapter comes from Walter Webb's report, followed by commentary from Coleman. The section on Baxter's sighting is intriguing as Webb includes Baxter's estimates of distance as well as the measurements that their daylight investigations came up with. According to Webb, Baxter was about 25 feet away from the figure in the dark when it suddenly stopped. Baxter called out to the creature and it suddenly darted off the road and down a hill. He gave chase and followed it through some woods and into an open field. He said it resembled some kind of monkey except for the shape of its head. After observing the creature for a few minutes, he began to feel uneasy and walked quickly back to the road where he hitched a ride back to his home. There, like Bartlett, he would draw pictures of the thing that he saw. Both witnesses drew something quite odd. I don't know why they say the shape of the head looked like a watermelon, because both drew the head as being more peanut-shaped. Both draw the creature's head as two large ovals with a narrow waist in the middle. And in many ways, the creature looks like a modern version of the gray alien that's become so ubiquitous. But it's quite different, too. But then there's the third sighting. It took place about 24 hours after Bartlett's. Will Taintor was driving his girlfriend, Abby Brabham, home. 
They were within two miles of the other two sightings when Abby saw something strange on the side of the road. Again, much of the same detail about the size and the head shape, but Abby saw green eyes and the figure was fully quadrupedal in his pose. Taintor said that the time she saw this, he didn't remember Bartlett having told him about the creature he had seen, but when he recalled it, he then pressed Abby for more details because he felt there was a lot of similarity. The parents of all the teen witnesses agreed that the sightings were unusual, but that their children were not prone to making stuff up or pulling pranks. And with that sighting comes an end to the Dover Demon sightings. If you think that this peculiar story of a one-night encounter with little goblin or fairy-like creatures sounds similar to the Kentucky Goblins case, well, that didn't escape the notice of Lauren Coleman or Walter Webb. They talked with MUFON investigator Ted Bletcher, who classified the case as being non-UFO related. Which is funny, given how much the monster reminds one of a gray. But, as we'll hear in our interview with investigator Joe Nickel, there may be more in common with those cases than any of us had considered previously. Monster talk. We're excited to have back paranormal investigator Joe Nickel. Since the 1990s, Joe has been applying scientific investigation techniques to mysteries that are usually considered paranormal. He's found numerous hoaxes, frauds, scams, and cases of tomfoolery, but he prefers, when possible, to find out if there are plausible, natural explanations that can provide the clue to the demystifying of these encounters that seem incredibly unlikely or maybe even impossible. He calls these paranormal investigations because, in the right circumstances, the mundane can come across as monstrous or miraculous. Joe Nickel is the author of many books, including Real Life X-Files, The Science of Ghosts, The Science of Miracles, Adventures in Paranormal Investigation, Camera Clues, and many more. Instead of linking to a specific book in our show notes, it's easier for me just to link to Joe's Amazon authors page and let you check out his full corpus. So, welcome back to Monster Talk, Joe Nickel. So this is sort of a scoop here. We're bringing you in uh, yes. b- before you've published on this, and I'm very excited about that. Me too. Yes, we're gonna we're gonna talk about a a mystery that's been around for some time, and until this very uh, program has been unsolved. Joe, could you tell us the story of the Dover Demon? Well, the Dover Demon to set the scene takes us back in our time machine to 1977 in Dover, Massachusetts. And Dover is just a small town with sort of woodlands and pastures. But it's been called uh, with a lot of, uh, you know, fanfare. Uh, Lauren Coleman, the cryptozoologist, called it, quote, one of the most baffling creature episodes ever reported, end quote. And I have here um, Blackman's Field Guide to North American Monsters of 1998, and he says, quote, few cases in the history of cryptozoology have received as much attention as the peculiar Dover Demon Affair, unquote. And I think there's, uh, I mean, that sounds like a lot of hype, but uh, it really has had staying power. And uh, I'm going to confess that I I really solved this about 2005, to my satisfaction. But I hadn't worked out all the details and so forth. And things started happening in my life, like discovering that I had a daughter. (laughs) And after... 40 years marrying her mother and other minor things like that. And I got uh, a little distracted and had other work. And I just never really finished up on the Dover Demon, which at that time was not that big a deal. It was uh, just one of, you know, the -the run-of-the-mill mysteries that we we will always face, I guess. But recently... Recently, in Skeptical Inquirer, Benjamin Radford wrote a piece called Deconstructing the Dover Demon. And he didn't know what it was, but he sure speculates as to 
sort of the territory that we've got about it. Was it a hoax? Uh, was it a, a real creature? How do we explain certain discrepancies and certain things that must surely be exaggerations from the witnesses? And that kind of got me going again, and uh, so here we are. Well, how many people saw this thing, Joe? Well, what we have is we have really three encounters involving a total of four people. So two encounters were single people, and then one was a couple. And just to to give those just briefly— um, one was a sighting, the first one was a sighting by a William Bartlett, 17 years old, and took place in Dover on uh, April the 21st, evening of uh, that, that time, at uh, 10.30 p.m. approximately. And he just saw it for a a matter of a few moments, really, while he and some friends were riding the car. And he was driving, and he was the only one looking that way and the only one who saw it for just a matter of really a few seconds. And then about two hours later, a fellow named John Baxter, who was 15, these were all young young kids, And John Baxter, about two hours later, so by now it would be April 22nd, um, he he sees the uh, creature while he's walking home from his girlfriend's place. And he saw the creature coming down the walkway towards him, and then suddenly it scurried off and down and across a gully, and he started to follow it and then got afraid. So he saw it for a matter of a very few minutes, I would say three or four minutes, although he thought it was longer. People's sense of time is not not too great in such situations. And then finally, the third sighting was about 24 hours later. And that was a young lady named Abby Brabham, who was 15 years old, her boyfriend, Will Taintor, age 18. And he was uh, driving the two of them to her home, taking her home for the evening. And they saw it briefly in their headlights. So... I think it's important to to realize from that that the situation was not really very good for any of them to have a very good look at it, you see, Mm -hmm. because there are really discrepancies. I'm pretty sure uh, that I can explain everything, (laughs) Uh, but uh, there are are problems. Right. Well, uh, Joe... Joe, I'd like to ask, do you, do we know what has happened to John Baxter and Abby Brabham and, and these other people who claim that they saw the creature? Because often we have these people who have uh, these sightings and then they go on to write books and uh, movie scripts and appear at conferences, right. but these people seem to have just disappeared. They've, they've pretty much gone their way in life and not, not uh, stayed around to uh, be interviewed uh, all right. the time. But uh, uh, Lauren Coleman has kept up with them a little bit, and uh, it's uh, it's good to ask. But we know we know more about that time period when they saw it, and that's that's really the important thing. I find that when you ask people, you know, twenty years later, forty years later, in in the case of the um, Flatwoods monster, I was. I got there about 50 years later, and you're dealing with very old people then, and and their their memory is just completely uh, bizarre and goes off in odd directions sometimes. I mean, just really, you think, this doesn't match anything they said all those years ago. So I prefer 
it's my whether this is a bias on my part. I like to think it's experience. Um, what did they What did they first report? Yeah, Casey, go, go back to the originals. It. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then maybe they clarified a little bit, you know, afterwards. So you went back to the original Bartlett's quotations. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, got it. Yeah. <laughs> well, it was it was actually investigated by Lauren Coleman and some friends, some colleagues, and there's a report uh, that's very useful in in Coleman's book, Mysterious America. And that's it, it, they, you know, went back and interviewed them and uh, went over the ground with them and and. Uh, you know, reviewed what they saw and how long and tested out things. And and they came to conclusions about distance and how many seconds they probably, the encounter lasted, you know, that sort of thing. Yeah. And I think they did a pretty good job with that. Very, very helpful. And um, one of the things that uh, ought to be mentioned, I think, is that um, I don't like to just out of the blue discredit witnesses, but I, I, I believe that there were these witnesses were not part of a hoax. The original police statement was sort of like it was just a, you know, a prank. It was made up. Well, that's I think that's not true. Um, but we have to admit, as Bartlett did, we have to to uh, take his admission that he had been smoking marijuana ah. about an hour before. But he thought he was clear-headed when he saw uh, the creature. Well, huh. you know, I, uh, I'm a creature myself of the 60s, <laughs> and uh, I don't remember all of the 60s, you see. And so uh, was that good? <laughs> I, I know about the uh, effects of marijuana and and uh, hashish and so forth. Anyway, it's just fair to mention that that could have played a factor. And then as to John Baxter, he was a sci-fi writer, amateur, you know, but he wrote science fiction, so he maybe you could say had a tendency to sort of embellish stories. Mm -hmm. um, one more point maybe that should be made is that I'm convinced that Baxter and Bartlett at some early point must have compared notes. It's often been said, oh, no, they were totally independent and they didn't do that, and it's all just proof of how exactly they've recorded things. But they are, uh, and, and Radford gets this in his article that the if you look at the drawing that each of them did uh, they've got a sort of peanut shaped head uh, or a uh, um, they think of it as a uh, figure eight head but the earliest descriptions talk about it looking like a watermelon yeah. which is not figure eight. And there's just some discrepancies about that. And Radford, I think, quite correctly points out that when you look at the drawings, the head is just humongous for the overall figure. And then they've stuck in a little neck. And those those are elements that are just almost without question, even if I'm totally wrong about what it is. There's something bad wrong with with this, and yet the two of them agree. Yeah, did, I read somewhere, and I, I'll, I'll see if I can track this down before the episode goes out, uh, but that uh, Bartlett had made his drawing and then mimeographed it and was passing it around town, like, have you seen this creature? Uh, I heard they went to the same school. So. Yeah, so I, I, I didn't know if... They knew each other, yeah. they were, you know, and uh, so I think... Yes, uh, they've they've compared notes, right? And that's not necessarily, you know, anything dishonest, but it just ought to be mentioned. Well, I it, think. it can yeah. Uh, yeah. it can it, to be explicit. It can affect your own memories when you see other people's versions of things. Uh, Absolutely. Yeah. So, 
so with that in with that in mind, um, we uh, we have a mystery, and my view of such things is that, and and this is where uh, Lauren Coleman, who I know, and I, I guess have to admit we have pretty different perspectives. Um, Lauren seems to be always looking for a strange creature, and he seems very, very disappointed if you can explain it. Right. He's very much into uh, creating mystery, and the Dover demon has given him a mystery that's been pretty enduring. And yeah. I don't think he would be very happy with me. Uh, at what I'm what, what I'm about to do. Um, I, on the other hand, have tried to um, make my little career as a monsterologist or a skeptical cryptozoologist um, as someone who's trying to explain the real creature behind monster reports. And you're familiar with some that I've done. You know, the Flatwoods monster turned out to be very clearly a barn owl. Mm -hmm. No, it wasn't 10 feet tall, but it is if it's perched on a limb. And uh, various lake creatures that I've uh, identified as many of them being uh, otters, a mother otter and her pups all swimming in a line in an Mm -hmm. undulating motion and that's proven out in several cases. And uh, I've uh, more recently uh, coined the term the Bigfoot bear, um, referring to the fact that a, a lot of Bigfoot, Sasquatch, Gorilla Man sightings are a um, upright standing bear. So they're... they're categories of real animals that uh, repeat themselves somewhat. My detractors, of course, think I I see all lake monsters as, as otters. <laughs> and uh, Lauren Coleman once said uh, uh, we were on a show, TV show debating live, I think it was CNN or something, and, and he called what I said uh, Otter nonsense. <laughs> Erm inclined to disagree. Yep. <laughs> yeah, I came back later and, and published a piece, and I said, uh, "Lauren, otter no better." <laughs> but that's sort of that's sort of the nature of our our relationship. Uh, I guess he would say in an angry moment that I was a debunker, and I, I I would say, "No, I'm I'm not at all that. I disagree with." idea of being a debunker and i mm-hmm. might in a careless moment call him a mystery monger <laughs> maybe when we're at our best we're we're not those things and then of course i'm sure both of you know that i've i've been called much much worse well <laughs> <laughs> right, right not yes. not stuff not not stuff to put on the business card but uh now not you mentioned you you mentioned natural animals and and uh Karen and I were, were doing a little reading before this, and the list of some of the animals that have been proposed, you, you know, you, you look at them and, it, yeah, of course, these are not right. It's a, a baby moose, a calf. Oh, the, yeah, that's uh, – I'm glad you brought that up because there there is a sense in which the, the sort of um, figure-eight head could, could look moose-like, but it's a four-legged animal, and it – and it would be a lot larger than I think. Uh, yeah, a baby. They, they said yeah. this is about four feet tall. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. Mm. Ba- I think even that's much exaggerated. A baby moose is a sure. really big baby. That's a very yeah. large baby. <laughs> and of course, it had floppy ears, whereas this creature had no ears at all. Yes. You know what else has happened in the ensuing years? Um, many cryptozoologists and uh, paranormal enthusiasts have tried to lump this uh, creature in with gray aliens, with goblins, uh, with uh, uh, Native American folklore creatures. But 
Yeah. Most of the ones, you know, they, I can sort of see how it f- resembles the the way we look at the gray today a little bit, but uh, it it's um, it it doesn't look like the Kelly Hopkinsville creatures because it doesn't have ears, and uh, most of the creatures uh, that they compare it to, with the I guess with the exception of the grays, you know, aren't a great match. It's it's a peculiar, it's an outcast, an outlier. It, it is, yeah. Mm-hmm. But interesting, interesting that you brought up the Kelly creatures. Because um, this this animal that I'm I'm um, zeroing in on now, um, although it is said to be an earless variety, um, it's probably the closest relative of the Kelly creatures. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper, a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver? I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hello, I'm Paul Giamatti. And I'm Stephen Asma. Each week on Chinwag, we dig into the weird topics you wonder about, that you care about. The stuff none of us are totally sure of, like the Bermuda Triangle, Mothman, Consciousness, Philosophy, UFOs, Ghosts, or say Bigfoot. So who's to say that there's not alien species that are Sasquatch? Like I've seen a ghost, and I would hear something walking and breathing. Maybe every path is right. I will accept as a premise that every path is right. That is a face on Mars. Eyes, nose. It kind of looked like Wilson the volleyball. Some people enjoy the waves or whatever uh, crashing, and I enjoy listening to a quantum physics audiobook. I do think there are many things in the world that we just don't understand yeah. and probably won't understand. That's our yeah. whole show. <laughs> so join us every Wednesday on all major podcast platforms and find us on Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter at ChinwagPod and Wagon. So it's also some sort of goblin you're saying? <laughs> <laughs> Well, it might, be, it might be some type of, uh, shall we say, an owl. Oh. Oh. Go on. And this is, this is one of the first things that I recognized about this was the uh, once you once you correct for the, you know, the figure eight head and some things, you realize in fact, it was Lauren Coleman himself who actually mentioned the Kelly creatures as being similar to this, except for, as he put it, the floppy ears. And I thought that was, that was <laughs> very perceptive of him to, to see. So what, what I'm perceiving is a creature that has a round head, Large eyes, but about the head, no other features. And you think, but it must have ears. No, it doesn't have ears. It has just ear openings. And the nose and mouth are missing, but in fact it has a little beak. And those are mostly covered by bristles. So in many photos, and I have books of pictures... Uh, it, it looks just like it's described. No, it's an earless, big-eyed face with no mouth or nose. Mm-hmm. And the the I was puzzled by it for a while because I thought, well, but they did describe this figure eight head, you see. And what I think they've done is uh, um, imagine with me a bit. I think the top half of that figure eight head is is the actual head. Then where it narrows is the actual neck of the the real creature, and the lower part is its head and shoulders. Yeah, actually, uh, 
in the show notes uh, for Karen, I put a few photos, and one of I them. I can see that. Yeah, it absolutely looks like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, good, because uh, because I think that's. It took me a while to see where did they get that figure eight. Yeah, exactly. And and again, see, I think that argues for the basic honesty of the eyewitnesses. In other words, uh, the more we can explain, and it seems to fit and add up, the more it goes to their honesty, and they they did see something real. But but Joe, owls don't have long fingered hands. Ah. Well, our next thing, and this is, remember, you and I have already been there and done that with Kelly. Remember that the Kelly Kentucky Goblins had these long arms and fingers, remember? I do remember. And so what they, what people were seeing, and this is what I'm saying is seen here, they're seeing... The the owl, let's say, let's go that far now and say we're seeing an owl. And it's walking on the ground with its spindly legs. and But it doesn't have its wings out very much, just out a little bit maybe to, I don't know, balance with or uh, something. And there's a ridge on the outer edge of, of a wing of both of those species. And that can look like long, spindly arms if you see them that way. And at the end of the wing are approximately five feathers that look like five fingers. And again, you can, if you look at a whole book of uh, of creatures, you you can see uh, you can see this effect. So I'm I'm thinking, uh, and then one one more thing that needs to be pointed out here. I think this is a good time to reveal um, the creature they saw. They said was peach colored or tan. Huh? No, I think it was all pure white, and it got color from the car headlights oh. or from just the darkness or whatever. And they didn't see it as pure white. But mm-hmm. this is the male snowy owl. And it's uh, the female has a lot of brown markings and so forth. But the male, the older male, is just this all white. And some of them are just gorgeous creatures. Mm-hmm. And... Um, Oh, listeners! Explains why this is, you know, a light-colored creature, and uh, you know, it 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 could give it the color. Now, they they uh, one of the drawings they put some sort of splotches, and that could be it. It could be, uh, uh, you know, it's it's hard to make absolute generalizations about snowy owls because they're. You can find almost anything you want. So I'm I'm uh, going out on a limb here. As was the owl. What? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it, it, it's it's the uh, it, listeners. If you can't picture a snowy owl, uh, if you're a fan of the Harry Potter movies, the yes. the owl that Harry has, Hedwig Douglas, so Hedwig Hedwig, yeah, is uh, is the yeah ec- Hedwig excellent, is, yeah. That'd be, exactly. Yeah. And uh, so that's the creature that I think was seen. It's a rather exotic creature in many ways. It does exactly have the spindly legs. It does have the feet that mold to the rocks, uh, like w- one of the witnesses said. And as to its body uh, size, w- another reason for thinking it's a male um is that the male is not as the male and female of the species are both about the same length, about 24 inches. They could be as as tall as maybe 27 inches, something like that. Uh, so the height has been exaggerated by the eyewitnesses, just as it was at Kelly. But at Kelly, they remember the lady 
uh, after a day or so, re rethought that and and downsized it, which I thought was really good for her credibility. Well, yeah, but you know, men are prone to uh, driving around at night to exaggerate the size of things. That's just a known fact. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'll just leave that. Uh, yeah, I'll just I'll let you uh, defend yourself there and move right on. Uh, but hey, Joe, uh, I'm I'm wondering, have there been any sightings since 1977? I, because I would think that there would have been. Uh, not really. Uh, not that anybody uh, recognized that I'm aware of, but I, you know, there's so many sightings of things that would be an interesting thing to search for. Yeah, well, I, I would tell uh, you that uh, or what I, I thought was interesting. When you told me this hypothesis, uh, yep. my first thought was, well, wait a minute. You know, I think of snowy owls as being in the Arctic, but it turns out. Well,. I, they they actually come down to Massachusetts regularly. It's it's very common to see them. That's right. And and do you rem- do you remember just not weeks ago, there was one as far south as uh, Southern California. That's right. I heard that on NPR. Wow. Yeah. Incredible. Yeah. And uh, another they they also have some odd behavior in that uh, they. Um, you don't find them in trees like you do most owls. Uh, they walk on the ground. Uh, they do perch up on uh, barn roofs and, you know, higher elevations to look. They're looking for little rodents called lemmings. Mm. And uh, they, um, they're they not... Uh, not everywhere. They're they're just show up occasionally. They're migratory, um, and but their their nesting and everything is done in the Arctic. Uh, but anything you say about them will probably be wrong, and there will be exceptions. They're just mm-hmm. not you know they're not like some owls that are just you know you you know all about them and you can go look at them in the woods and you mm-hmm. know like a barn owl. And they're not very complicated and so forth. The snowy owl is, is really quite varied in in every part of it. And they, they build their nest in the ground, which which seems an odd thing to do. Oh, so they're like mm-hmm. a the, the other one I know, the burrow owl uh, actually literally digs a hole, I guess, or uses other animals' holes. They're, they're right. And there are other birds that do that. That is so interesting. And, yeah, it's it's very very interesting, and uh, the uh, uh, Baxter sighting. He got kind of nervous that he, he. If you read his statement, it's almost like he, he he thought the creature was trying to lure him. Well, one of the things that uh, snowy owls do is the broken wing trick. Are you familiar with that? I'm not. I am, but I'd love to hear about it. No. <laughs> well, I I had it done to me once by a smaller bird, uh, a lakeshore bird called a killdeer, and they have a ground nest. and And you'll you'll encounter one maybe walking along a beach or something, and the killdeer will, um, uh, you'll see one, and oh my poor thing, it's got a broken wing. And you'll start toward it. You're not sure quite what to do about it. And it goes just a little further out of your way. And it keeps doing that. (laughs) And then all of a sudden, it just takes flight and makes maybe makes mocking calls and flies off. (laughs) Very cunning. And what they've done is they've lured you away from a nest. Oh. And the snowy owl does that. But I didn't, uh, I, I haven't wanted to get too involved in that because I don't think it would be likely that at the time and place and everything there would be a nest at the Dover situation. I'm a little afraid to say anything about that because I'll probably be wrong. Even the experts will caution you, be careful whatever you say. Because they're so varied and the situations are such. Exactly. And, but, and, but they tend to uh, make nests up you know, up in uh, the Arctic, and then, but still, one might be with a mate or might be traveling, 
you know, and just want to lead people away. But you could see the behavior of this creature in all the sightings as being kind of as if it's almost trying to lead you away or yeah, especially with the, I think the second sighting where he said he followed it down into the woods, trying to chase yeah. it. Yeah, and, it, yeah. and when you yeah. when you follow all that, you think, well, why why would that creature, which we've now decided is a real creature, uh, if it was disturbed or something, it should just fly away, shouldn't it? And so why would it why would it stick to the ground and still and be doing that? And and I've wondered if it was doing a bit of its uh crippled bird uh, stunt for some reason. Yeah. It and could... if so it it kind of worked because he went he went following it, you see. Mm-hmm. He went he went a few steps into the into the down the gully and then uh, he got a little nervous about it or something and he he left. But anyway, it's just something to think about. Yeah, I think in in about I think 2019 I did a paper where I uh, I I'm, I talked about the model of uh, monster flaps, um, and that was not an intentional pun here, but uh, it does fit. Um, <laughs> the uh, it, what usually happens in a flap though is you get an initial sighting, and then you'll get additional sightings. And then, right. and then eventually, someone will come along who says, well, "Wait a minute! Monsters don't just appear out of nowhere. There must be monsters in the history of this place." And they'll go back and check folklore and find other things that may or may not actually match up, and then try to make that all mm-hmm. part of this long history. And I, I, I think a couple of things are interesting about this case because one, it doesn't seem to cause a, a much of an outbreak unless yeah. you consider. That the population of this town was only about forty five hundred people, so right. in, a, in a big monster flap, you sometimes get dozens and dozens of people reporting this. But you know that's that's about the top end, and right. uh, you know for a town with forty five hundred, three people is actually a pretty big <laughs> yeah, number. For that number. And yeah, but I I. Um... I'm pretty convinced that this is a real creature. Oh, I think so too. Yeah, they yeah, saw they saw what sense. they said, and um, and uh, it's uh, I think it's fascinating to consider this uh, snowy owl. <laughs> its name is uh, uh, the scientific name is Bubo scandiacus. And its closest relative to the Bubo virginianus, which is the uh, Kelly Goblin, great horned owl. Wow! Ah. So they are really they're really similar. So I was a little ahead of the game, you see, with explaining the very long, skinny arms and the huge hands or long fingers that they described. Well, their description is you know, sort of accurate. And uh, you can see how they were misled. Mm-hmm. I think particularly with uh, the head neck business. And uh, maybe we should not be so critical because if you just see something quickly like that, you know, it's very hard to, uh, to get it all right. It's well enough to say later you, you can, sit down and analyze and and so forth but uh, mm-hmm. we have to cut them a little slack but i defend them as far as uh it was a real a real uh series real encounters of a real creature and was our friend the lovely snowy owl once again uh, i i i think i started to say and maybe i didn't get it Maybe I got maybe I distracted myself when I was talking about the male and female being about the same height of 24 inches. I meant to also add that the female, and this is would be generally most animal species unusual, the female has a larger body than the male by maybe 25 Mm percent. But it's not so odd when you look at their roles. Uh, hers is to sit on the nest 
and to sort of cover the little, there's some really lovely pictures. <laughs> this one book has got these little darlings all crouched under her, and she's very oh. attentive. It's very, very cute. And and she she can use that larger body size, you see, to sort of uh, take care of them and even use it to, to fend off a, an attacker, maybe. And the male doesn't need that, and he's much more svelte. And he's got the job of uh, flying off and uh, uh, getting these lemmings and bringing them back. And he's kept constantly busy doing it. And apparently their habits to each other and stuff are really quite interesting, how the courtship and how they find each other and all that. She's looking for a good provider, and he's doing his little dance with a lemming in his mouth. It's really quite lovely. And eventually they uh, they settle on each other, and... Um, and are good for uh, at least one season. They're monogamous. <laughs> just at until the kids are out of school, longer, but, right? Uh, again, it's, it's just not... It, the casualty rate on them, I think, keeps them from maybe mating for life. I don't know. Right. They're fascinating creatures, everything I've uh, read or seen about them. And uh, I think we're I think we're on to the... The solution to the mystery. What do you think? Yeah, I think so. I think, Joe, well done with your research. It's a very convincing theory. And uh, it's just so interesting to me that you've been sitting on this for so long. I I didn't have it all worked out, though. I wasn't ready to publish or whatever. It wasn't I, quite hatched. It wasn't quite hatched. <laughs> yeah, was like... Nice. Oh. <laughs> oh. <laughs> and, uh, Oh, my goodness. I don't know, Karen. Maybe if we don't laugh so much, we won't encourage him. That, that's right. Good point. <laughs> well, Joe, I, I'm excited uh, for you to let us premiere this here. We're, we're, uh, as I assume you will also be writing it up for publication somewhere. Well, I'm, I'm uh, thinking, yes, I will, and uh, thinking that uh, I might even just submit it to Skeptical Inquirer. Mm-hmm. As a follow-up to uh, what Radford did, it probably wouldn't be an immediate follow-up, but I don't know what else to do with it. I, I'm, uh, I've worked on a sketch a little bit, but I'm hesitant to uh, to make a sketch because I'm not really working anatomically, you see, from exact models or don't have the photos I probably need mm-hmm. to really put it all together. But I've got the story of... I think pretty well figured out. I don't know who it will make happy, but it. Oh, we're happy, and our listeners will be happy. Yeah, no, I think it would be lovely to see the uh, the Wikipedia entry for the monster updated with yes. this new relevant information. Yes. Well, I, I hope somebody will do that. I I can't do it, but I I hope somebody will. No, I I I'm confident. You know, we have a lot of Wikipedia uh, editors right here in our audience, so the, no mm-hmm. doubt, no doubt, it'll it'll yep. see the light of day. Uh, I'll Sounds I'll put good. lots of uh, notes uh, in the show notes for people who want to uh, make you know see all the references Joe's talking about. And mm-hmm. excellent, uh, great. Yeah. Okay. Well, I think we covered everything about the appearance. Yeah. Um, I think we got it. I think we got all the elements in and how they. Uh, how they tend to compare and so forth, the explanation mm-hmm. for them. So, Yes, excellent. Well, uh, un- until we next uh, talk again, which I'm sure we will, Joe. We've got this project Hopefully we're working soon. on. So I don't want to blow the lid on that yet, but it's coming. So, yeah. Yes, yes. <laughs> More we'll exciting to, news. Uh, uh, the thing is, these monsters keep appearing. <laughs> well, that's good for both of us, all three of us. I mean, both of us in the you know, sense of the show. I, I and, have you know. to say, yeah. I have to say, uh, and not being a debunker, because I think there's no real fun in debunking. I think solving a mystery, though, is just a wonderful thing to do. It's it's uh, mm-hmm. intriguing, it's exciting, and it's rewarding. And, uh, you know, I just think mysteries are meant to be solved. And uh, I'm sorry that some of the monster promoters are 
probably not going to be too happy with it. They'll probably deny, probably call me a lot of names. They'll say I'm, I've got owls on the brain. You know, <laughs> you know what they'll say. Well, we don't listen to them. <laughs> More importantly, they don't listen to us, so I think we're fine. <laughs> yeah, it's mutual. <laughs> That's right. Well, uh, Joe, I, I've gotten a few death threats over the years, but not from the Bigfooters or those people. Oh, wow, that's terrible, though. I can imagine maybe from the alien crowd, but I guess that's for another time. Well, Shroud of Turin people. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah, I've gotten some pretty nasty calls and things from... You don't always know who's calling because they they just tell you what they're going to do to you or something. Oh, very wrong. It seems like they'd forgive you. Isn't that wasn't that the point of that book? I, I've only read it a few times, so maybe I missed it. Supposedly. The... <laughs> <laughs> anyway, uh, Joe, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to you. us once again and for uh, giving us thanks, this Thanks awesome. for having me. I've enjoyed it. Excellent. Oh, us too. <laughs> well, good night, and uh, yes. this will be up in about two weeks. I'll call you when it's uh, oh. up so you'll know about it. Monster Talk. You've been listening to Monster Talk, the science show about monsters. I'm Blake Smith. And I'm Karen Stolzner. You just heard an interview with scientific paranormal investigator Joe Nickel about how he believes he's found a natural explanation for the peculiar sighting known as the Dover Demon. Not every weird creature sighting can be explained by owls, but I believe this is the third odd encounter where it might just fit the bill. There are several features of the Dover Demon that fit the snowy owl, especially in the Baxter and Bartlett sightings. If we believe the eyeshine color of the third sighting, that she saw green instead of orange, that one detail makes me think maybe that sighting was of a canid, maybe a mangy one at that, but it would be a closer match on the eyeshine that one would expect. All three sightings were in a similar area, but the third is the only one we know for sure at least one of the two witnesses had been primed with information from the previous sighting. To be clear, I don't think any hoaxing needs to be at play for this story. It's been over 40 years, and no one has proposed a really convincing natural explanation for what might have been seen that night by those teens. And like the cases of the Kentucky Goblins and the Flatwoods Monster, the creature may have been seen hundreds of times since then, but could have been correctly identified as an owl and thus not added further to the lore. We'll never know for sure. But I found Joe's hypothesis intriguing enough to go looking for snowy owl photos that have many of the features which match the narrative of the Dover Demon. And they definitely match more than most of the proposed creatures I've heard pushed as explanations. Here's another clip from that Lost Tapes episode where Coleman and anthropologist Jessica Lynch Alfaro discussed some other possible natural explanations. We looked into whether it could be a, a mutant sort of animal or a, a baby horse some kind of experimental animal that might have disappeared from some laboratory that doesn't exist there. Somebody came up with the theory was a baby moose. It was the wrong time of year for a baby moose. A baby moose at that time of year would have been the size of a Volkswagen. There are a couple of ideas that I have, but all of them are exotics. So they're, they're animals that you wouldn't find in Dover, Massachusetts, unless someone had the animal for a pet and the pet escaped. But I think this is a, a, a possibility and it would match nicely with the fact that the Dover demon was only seen on a two day period. I think my favorite in trying to match up the Dover demon with a natural species is the slender loris. It's a nocturnal primate. It has very skinny, long arms and legs. It has gigantic eyes. It's nocturnal, so it has the tapetum lucidum and can have eye shine. Snowy owls fit the territory, and given the lighting conditions, the brevity of the sightings, and other limits of human perception, this is another case where one must at least consider the possibility that our weird feathered friends may have once again confounded us into seeing monsters. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Monster Talk. Each episode, we strive to bring you the very best in monster-related content with a focus on bringing scientific skepticism into the conversation. If you enjoy Monster Talk, we now have a variety of ways to support the show, all with convenient links at monstertalk.org forward slash support. That's monstertalk.org forward slash support. 
We have links there to our Patreon page as well as a donation button. Another great way to support the show is to buy books from our Amazon Monster Talk wish list, which directly helps us with our research. We love used books very much, so don't feel compelled to buy new ones. And we love Kindles, so we can share our digital libraries with each other. And finally, without spending any money at all, you can support us by leaving a positive review at iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Positive reviews help keep us visible in iTunes, which is a great way to help us find new listeners. And please share our show on your favorite social media platforms. Monster Talks, a proud member of the Airwave Media Podcast Network, home of such shows as Good Job Brain, I Know What Scares You, and I Know What Scares You. If you'd like to advertise on the show, contact sales at advertisecast.com. Monster Talk theme music is by Peach Stealing Monkeys. Thanks for letting our voices rattle around in your head for a bit. This week was the Dover Demon, but next week we'll be heading right to the gates of hell. Stay tuned. been a Monster House presentation. Bye for now. Keep your teeth clean. Lemming, lemming, lemming of the BDA. Lemming, lemming, lemming of the BD, lemming of the BD, BD, BDA. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.